Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta. My interview today is with Atlanta-based drummer Quentin Robinson, who moved here from Miami in 2010 and has found a lot of success both in the studio and on the road. He has performed with Kenny Lattimore and Avery Sunshine, among many others, is in high demand in the world of recording, Ableton production, and stem file creation, and is currently playing for the new musical Born For This. Please visit us at workingdrummer.net, where you can check out past episodes and learn more about who we are and what we're about here. There are also ways for you to support what we do. Along the right side of the homepage, you'll see buttons for PayPal and Patreon, and every donation in any amount is greatly appreciated. You can follow us on social media, and we encourage you to share pics and videos of your gigs on Instagram using the hashtag WorkingDrummer to be featured. We love seeing what everyone is up to out there in this crazy business of ours. Please keep it up. We recently surpassed 10,000 posts using the hashtag WorkingDrummer. Finally, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher, and your ratings and reviews on those platforms are very helpful. So what you're going to hear today is the first half of my talk with Q. As usual, I had some topics and questions prepared for him, and we hit some of them, but we ended up having this long and very free-flowing conversation that touched on many different things, all of which I found to be interesting and fun and valuable. So part one this week, part two in two weeks. Hope you dig Quentin Robinson. I'm not a poster at all. I've tried to get better at doing it. Yeah. Which, you know, hence all of the hashtags and the mentions or whatever. Right. Just trying to be more conscious of it, understanding that social media is gold. Yeah. And being an artist, you know, it is an obligation to do that. Yeah. You know. Yeah. If it, we've talked about it before. If you don't have some kind of presence on at least one or two platforms, you know, somebody's going to hear about you and, and like, Oh, let's look him up. Let's check out his Instagram. Let's see what, let's go to YouTube. And if they can't find anything, Mm -hmm. then they're going to be like, well, fuck it. Yeah. Um, that's almost becoming like the preemptive audition. Like that is, or the audition. Yeah. 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 Okay. So you, you mentioned two things right before we started rolling. One was jam card and one was the whole gospel thing. Mm -hmm. So, so talk about jam card because I am probably like a lot of musicians Mm -hmm. in that I've, I've heard of it, but I don't know what it is or what it's for. Okay. So jam card was created by, um, Elmo Lovano. Um, he's a dope drummer too. Mm -hmm. Um, but there are only two, there are two locations. It's, uh, in LA, it started in LA Mm -hmm. and, I got introduced to it in L.A. Someone invited me to a jam jam out in L.A. Mm -hmm. And um, they recently launched in um, Atlanta um, a couple of couple of months ago. Mm -hmm. And um, so Jam Card is kind of like the musician, the working musicians, industry musicians network. Right. And there are testimonials where music directors will go there. And check out whoever they're looking for, or they'll put out a um, all call. Hey, looking for a drummer from July the thirty first to August first right. for you know uh, filming, mm-hmm. or got this tour coming up, looking for a band. You know, please tag us in your videos or whatever the case may be. Yeah, and um, so it was based. 
I think what it's turn, turning into is the social media network for musicians. I mean, also, although it's currently active in Atlanta and L.A., there are still other musicians from different cities that are on there. Right. Um, like, you'll see some Nashville musicians on there. You'll see some, you know, Philly musicians, New York, Chicago, wherever. Mm-hmm. But um, it's a great thing to actually have something that that's not bogged down. It's actually serving the purpose. Right. Uh, as opposed to it turning into something else. Like Facebook, the way Facebook is used now wasn't what it was designed to be. Right. You know, <laughs> um, and even some of the, um, some of the, the, uh, I don't even know what you call them. Um, the groups uh-huh. on Facebook. Yeah. You know, where it would have been for, you know, like the Atlanta musician circuit. Right. There are people soliciting, selling shoes and washing machines, you know, and trying to pedal off, you know, their music as opposed to it being, you know, a forum where people can come, where hiring right. parties and people looking to work can converge. Right. And those, those Facebook groups, like you said, become a platform for like, hey, check out my shit. Right. Whereas Jam Card is more of like, I have a job. Who wants the job? Right. Um, and yeah, it's it's super dope. And it's I think the exclusivity of it, you know, I, I always say musicians... We can be some of the most humble people, but at the same time, to do what we do at a high level, there's a level of narcissism to it. Yes. And um, I think this kind of feeds that because it's invitation only. Uh-huh. So someone has to <laughs> someone has to feel you're worthy of this um, this honor to be a part of Jam Card. Right. Like even like with the the, invi- the invitations that I have, the invites that I have. You get five, and those five have to be approved by a jam card executive. Right, right. Like so, they look at your profile and like, okay, fine, you get five. But it, it speaks to what you were saying also before we started rolling, which is that there's, um, you know, there's there's jam card, there's that's my gig, there's all these digital platforms. But in the end, this is still this business is still about relationships. Sure, it's still about who you know and just cultivating and maintaining absolutely those relationships. So th- with with jam card. Yeah, it's kind of this exclusive, status-driven, like ego, sure. ego boosting <laughs> Absolutely. thing. Yeah, but you're you're not going to get on it unless you have a relationship with someone and they trust you and they vouch for you and they recommend you. Absolutely, which is how it happens in the analog world. Sure, yeah, sure. Um, I think um, Elmo has done a great job of marrying the two. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and he has these amazing events called the Jam Jam. And what it is, is that it's a huge jam session. Mm-hmm. It's two or three drummers. But, and obviously there's um, there's a, a keynote performer. Um, so when they did the one here, Chris Moten does this trap jazz orchestra thing. Mm-hmm. So um, he was the featured performer. But with that, all the musicians that are part of Jam Card get an invitation to it so it becomes a networking event right you know in LA you know when I went to it like it just so happened that everybody was home off a tour Mm -hmm. so your Stanley Randolphs were there and your Mike Mitchells were there and you had all of these guys that are usually on the road right they're rolling up to this jam jam and it's usually in some beautiful you know rustic kind of like where industrial space then you walk in 
and it's just bam, everybody's there. You know, yeah. horn sections and keyboard players and guitarists and there's all of that who you play for and what you do, it's over with. Uh-huh. And it's just the fact that you're a part of this amazing thing. Yeah. And you're in that moment and you live it and um you can even feel the energy when you watch the videos. You can actually feel the energy in the room then. But to be in the room is a totally different experience. Mm-hmm. And um, the sense of community. There, um, I'm not from Atlanta. I'm from Miami originally. Right. But um, Atlanta is a city full of transplants. Yes. So just like L.A. Mostly. I mean, not to the extent that L.A. or New York but, is. Um, but but yeah, it's it. I, I find it's full of southeastern transplants. Sure. Like in in L.A., you know, it's full of transplants from all over the sure. world. And sure. Atlanta has, I mean, for hundreds of years, literally, has been kind of this magnet for the southeast. Sure. Um, so, but yeah, you were saying. Yeah, yeah. A bunch so of transplants. So it's a bunch of transplants. So you don't get that feeling of um, home that you would in a Chicago right. or a Philly, you know, and even to a New York. Like there are a lot of transplants in New York, but. You'll be, it'll be easier to find New York natives than Atlanta natives. Yes, this is particularly in the entertainment industry. Right, right. And because um, if you come up in New York, why leave? Right, it's right. New York, right. <laughs> and uh, all of that, the 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 playing, it's level. Mm-hmm. Everything is. Everybody's there, and if you're there. It's because you belong there. Mm-hmm. And it's not, well, how much money did you make last year on your tour or who are you playing with or what endorsements you have? None of that matters. Mm-hmm. You're in the room and he's done a very good job of cultivating that energy. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, I found Atlanta to be this. This is what I tell people about mm-hmm. Atlanta. And, and I, I would like you to, to corroborate this if okay. you can. The the cream of the crop in Atlanta, like the the first round draft picks, mm-hmm. I think are as strong as they are in L.A. or New York. Sure, Atlanta doesn't have as deep a bench, right? There's more of those cats in L.A., New York, Nashville, mm-hmm. or whatever. But I have found the talent level, like the highest talent level, to be just as high. Would you Would you agree? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, the first round draft picks, they stay working here. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. um, I've benefited from that. When I first moved here, I was the sub guy. Mm-hmm. I subbed for everybody. Me too. You I'm, know, I'm still I'm still kind of the sub guy for a couple of things. Sure. I become the main guy for a couple of things. Sure, but, but yeah. So um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, Atlanta has some of the the greatest talent in the world. Mm-hmm. It was one of the reasons why I moved. Here. When did you move here? I moved here in 2010. Okay. Um, from Miami. From Miami. Um, born and raised in Miami. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like I had hit a glass ceiling. Yeah. You know, um, I taught high school math. You know, I had one of the, uh, I was playing, I was a music director and a drummer at one of the largest congregational churches down there. So the money was good. Mm-hmm. I was also playing with the top corporate band. And because Florida is a paradise, instead of like the corporate bands here, they have to travel everywhere. Right. You had all of the snowbirds coming to Florida. Mm -hmm. So I never had like, so an hour drive and I'm at this amazing facility where we're doing the wedding or the whatever. Right. And um, I had my pick of the litter as far as the gigs were concerned. I was working every day of the week Mm -hmm. and it just 
feel it still didn't feel like it was enough. Mm-hmm. You know, and I felt like I was closer to my purpose when I was playing with an artist or um as opposed to doing a corporate gig or, it, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um and there's nothing wrong with that. Like if if that's how you do it and, and the money's good. You make a good dollar, man. Do it do it. Do it all. You know? <laughs> um and I just I was like, well, what am I what am I gonna do? And if I'm um if I'm a hundred percent honest, um Atlanta was the safe choice for me. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, being from Miami, if anything went wrong, <laughs> I could get back to Miami um fairly easy. Yeah. It's eleven hour drive, you right, know, right. Thirteen hour bus drive uh-huh. ride or whatever. Um, New York just seemed daunting at the time, uh-huh. and LA was just too far away. Right. So Atlanta was the closest industry city that I could get to, and feel safe. Yeah. Now hindsight being twenty twenty, and having a lot more confidence now than I did back then, mm-hmm. I probably want to move to LA or New York, only because where my career is pulling me now, I'm in New York a lot. Yeah. You get, yeah, yeah. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, um, but I will say that the lessons that I learned and the people that I met since I've been here, they've been invaluable mm-hmm. to my growth as a musician, yeah. as a man, um, as a professional working musician. Right. Without those people, I'm probably not sitting at this table right now. Right. And you, you talk about it like it's the safe choice, like that's a bad thing. Right. Um, but it, I mean, there's, you know, of course you want to take risks, but there's something to be said for taking measured risks. Sure. Right. Like sure. not taking the biggest risk. Right. So like, I mean, you the, the term like hedge your bet right. is always used kind of in a negative connotation. Right. But, but that's, that's what you did. You're yeah. like, I'm going to step it up. I'm going to move from Miami to Atlanta, which is a bigger city, has more industry, mm-hmm. more hooked into the rest of the world and, and, and all that. Um, and now that you have the experience in Atlanta, if you want to make the jump to New York or L.A., like now you're really ready for sure to do that. I moved from Kansas City to L.A. I spent seven years in Kansas City. Wow. And then I, I decided, like, I'm going to I'm going to take on it take on LA. I'm going to mm-hmm. make the jump. Sure. Um, and I had some success there. I didn't crash and burn. Mm-hmm. Like I made a living. I played at Disneyland. I played in a few groups. I, you know, I did, you did, I did the thing. stuff there, but right. in hindsight, I was not, uh, I was not ready to really, um, take it on, uh, in a way that, that would benefit me the most. I didn't, I didn't have the confidence. I thought I did, mm-hmm. but once I got there, I was like, Oh shit. <laughs> right. Um, and I didn't quite have the, like, I didn't have the hang chops. Sure. You know? Isn't it interesting um, when you finally attain that thing that you've been looking for and you look back at the old you, you like, oh, yeah, if I would have got that then, I would have screwed it up because I wasn't ready. I think about my wife the exact same way. <laughs> <laughs> like, my, my wife and I have been best friends since high school. Right. And I always wanted to date her. Sure. And we didn't start dating until we were 30. Wow. And that's, that is the reason we are still together. Right. Because if, if it would have happened sooner when I really wanted it to, right. I, I would not have been. Man, there's so, many, there's so many things I can think about where I'm just like, wow. <laughs> If I would have got it back then, I would have screwed it up. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm I'm talking about gigs. I'm talking about ah, man, I remember 
And Tony, since we were talking about Jonathan Joseph earlier, yeah. and um, there was this um, young lady, her name is Antonia Wilson. And um, this was while, during my UM days, she used to uh, direct the, the, um, the gospel choir at UM. And I played for that choir. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, right out of high school, big man on campus type vibe, you yeah, know, yeah. thinking I, I knew everything and everything revolved around me and my drumsticks. And uh, she cut me down. <laughs> I mean, in the most loving way, she cut me down. Yeah. And I look back at that and I was like, if it wasn't for that experience and her introducing me to Jonathan, things could have went awry. Like Jonathan Joseph was the first guy that I can't say he was the first guy, but he was definitely the first professional drummer that was doing it on that level. Because at that point he was playing with David Sanborn between David Sanborn, Pat Metheny and, um, was it Jeff Beck or somebody? No, he's doing Jeff Beck now. Okay. But back then he was doing, um, David Sanborn, Pat Metheny, he did a stint with the Yellow Jackets. Right. Okay. You know. Yeah. Um, and Nesta Torres, I mean, it, the list just kept going. Right. And I'm looking at him like, holy So you're, crap. You're, you're right out of high school at this point? Oh, yeah. Okay. So in your bio, you describe your time studying with Jonathan mm-hmm. Joseph as the time where, like, you, you all of a sudden kind of decided or realized that like I want to do this for a living yes so what talk about your time with Jonathan man so Jonathan was the guy that challenged me uh-huh. you know and um, having been a teacher what I realize is the, the 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 teachers that are the hardest on you typically are the ones that you gravitate to the most at some point mm-hmm. um, naturally I believe that we all want to be corrected it is in our DNA as children to want to be Correct it. Mm-hmm. Even if we revolt against it or rebel against it, it is something deep in our genetic structure that craves correction and yeah. direction. Yeah, yeah. Jonathan was the first musician to challenge me that way. Mm-hmm. You know, um, growing up in high school, being the best drummer in the high school, being the state drummer, being the best guy in the jazz band. Yep. You get the extra piece of cornbread at lunch or the extra milk at lunch. You know, you finish your homework. You finish your, your, your assignment on time. The teacher knows what's up. Right. Go to the band room. Right. You know, right. Jonathan was the first person to be like, is that it? You know, but it was always it was always challenging. He always challenged me. If I did something right, he challenged me to do it better. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I wish um, I would have done more with the time that I had with him. So um, I still have it to this day. It's sitting on my desk. The it was the first piece of the first assignment he gave me was a single beat sheet, and it just went through various permutations of rhythm. Um, and you would play that rhythm, and you would pick the kick drum rhythm. You would kick, pick the snare drum rhythm, and you would just go through different various hi hat patterns. Mm-hmm. And then ride patterns. Yep. So it's working on your four-way independence, but at the same time, understanding groove. Yeah. And I'm sitting there, and I'm just like, and this is stupid, or whatever, until I heard him play it. Uh-huh. And then I was like, wow. You know, and because he was an adjunct at the university, you know, sometimes he wouldn't be there. 
And we're like, well, well where is he? Oh, he's out with Pat Metheny. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow. <laughs> you know? Right. And um, just the way he went about things. Like, he was very, uh, very powerful in the things that he said, but it was never over the top. Right. You know, if I did something, he would question even the way I set up drums. Uh-huh. You know, he would question my posture. You know, so he was the first musician, the first drummer that pushed me and challenged everything that I did mm-hmm. to the point where it made me start setting up in the mirror. Right. And it right. made me want to be a stronger reader. Yeah. And it made me not only want to sound good, but understand why I was doing what I was doing. Yeah. Yeah. That's an important um an important development that's that's ongoing in everybody's education. Sure. Just constantly interrogating your own playing and your mm-hmm. own sound and saying, like, is is this sound really what I want? Sure. Is this style really what I would want to listen to? Sure. Is this setup serving me physically? Sure. Um, and, 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 you know, it's kind of exhausting <laughs> in a way because it makes drumming feel like this moving target. Yeah. But... Um, but otherwise, you just fall into bad habits. Yeah. Um, you know, and so for me, I was self-taught. I started playing drums fairly early. I was three years old, mm-hmm. playing in church. Could barely walk. Uh, and I was playing drums in church. Obviously, I don't remember that. Yeah. This is what I was told. Um, Jonathan was the first person that I took lessons from. Uh-huh. And most of the time, it wasn't the input of new information. It was breaking the old habits. Mm-hmm. You know, a big one for me was posture. Yeah. A huge, I mean, I cannot stress enough how much posture plays a role in how you play. Yep. John Lamb would be laughing. John, John Lamb is the guy that has the book out about the anatomy of a drummer and mm-hmm. how you sit and everything needs to be ergonomically you know, sound for you to um, prolong your playing years. Right. And um, I couldn't agree more. Mm-hmm. Um, th- so those were the first lessons. And they were they were tough because everything that I was used to, like how I gripped the drumstick and, you know, using the fulcrum and using these different grips to my advantage. Yeah. Instead of just picking up the sticks and playing. Right. Understanding you know, this is where your finesse comes from and this is where your power comes from. Yeah, yeah. You know, and why do you have the symbol all the way over there? You're reaching, you're literally losing milliseconds that you could be back mm-hmm. to where you're starting position. Yeah, yeah. And um, so he really, uh, there are counterpoints in our careers, in our lives. And like Jonathan Joseph is a huge counterpoint for me. Yeah. Um, if it's not for him, um, I fail miserably, <laughs> you know, because it's that thing of seeing someone do the thing that you want to do uh-huh. and then following that pattern mm-hmm. until you get to a point where you f- figure out, OK, this is where he's going, but I want to go this way. Right. It's not about it's not about uh, copying what they do. Mm-hmm. It's about copying how they do it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, even to the point like I use the 8A. Uh huh. When I met Jonathan Joseph, he was using the 9A uh-huh. by Regal Tip. I think he's still using it, but it was the same type of stick. I think the 9A is just a little thicker in the grip, mm-hmm. but it's the same barrel tip. Yeah. You know, wow, I'm just thinking about that. <laughs> that might be a reason why I use the 8A. 
but he um he's a gentle giant mm-hmm. but he's a monster yeah he's a monster um when i met him he was just getting into the afro cuban afro beat independence thing that now he has the book on he has the video and is kind of become the authority when it talks about those things um and just sitting there just absorbing everything yeah and towards the end at that point i was like okay i get it right and so now i'm living off of everything that he does mm-hmm. like if jonathan joseph is eating an orange at 805 in the morning <laughs> i'm eating an orange at 805 in the morning you know um and growing up in church like uh i came from a very um very strict background mm-hmm. um so the records that i was playing to were gospel records it was commissioned in the winings that's what was going to be played in the house don't ask for anything else mm-hmm. um so playing uh being with jonathan was my first intro into the yellow jackets right which led me to my current mentor and friend will kennedy mm-hmm. you know um i was introduced to the yellow jackets from there yeah you know um and so i kind of started late with the with the jazz stuff right you know right um and it's one of those things you're either a jazz head or you're not it's, there's no in between with yeah, it, it, yeah. You know, I have an interesting relationship with this because I was heavy into jazz. Sure. My whole time in Kansas City, I went to grad school for it. Sure. Um, and you know, I went through this transition in in my life and in my career where I was like, it was kind of what I was talking about, yeah. interrogating your motivation, sure, your taste, and and I finally realized like this is, I, this is not what I want to do. Sure. It's not that I hate it. It's sure. Just, it's just not me. Sure. You know. So I still have. Um, I still play some jazz mm-hmm. here and there, and my hand, like my jazz hands, are, are leaving me. <laughs> I gotta stay on it. Right. Um, but but yeah, I know what you mean about like you either kind of have to be in the jazz world, sure, or or you can't. It's really hard to to keep a foot in in both worlds and keep them both up. Some sure. drummers are really good at it. Really good. Like at Marlon it. Patton. Oh my god! Can yes. sit down on any gig and just like he can Brian Blade the fuck out of something, or he can leave on Helm the fuck yep. out of something. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I have. There's another guy in Miami. His name is Dave Shiverton. Yeah. Dave is like that. Okay. Dave. Dave would. Dave is a jazz head. Uh huh. Dave is. Probably one of the biggest jazz heads I know, hmm. but when he lays a groove down, you totally—he's one of those players that you forget that he plays jazz so well right. because he's playing this funk groove mm-hmm. so good, you know. Yeah. Um. Like so, he'll do like John Kaz or Troy Roberts and New Jive, and it'll be like, wow, this is an amazing jazz drummer. Mm-hmm. And then he will turn right around and play. Uh, with Lauren Hill or John Sakata, and you would totally forget that this was the same guy giving you a swing. Right. You know? Right. And I'm not that guy. <laughs> Me, neither. Me neither. And how I think about jazz playing now is like I um I would I would put my jazz feel sure. up, up against anyone. Sure. Because that doesn't leave right. really. What leaves is the vocabulary. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so anytime I'm on a jazz gig now like you know, if I'm if I'm just riding, you know, comping behind a solo, like I I feel great. Yeah. You know, I'm totally confident in my yeah. abilities. But when it comes time to 
really interact or like really mm-hmm. break off a solo like I'm competent sure but you know compared to somebody like Marlon or probably this guy you're, yeah. you're talking about in Miami yeah, I'm it's, like, it's, I'm not, not one of those guys anymore like I, I totally hear you it's like I can I can I can get you I can get you there right right but like we'll swing yeah we'll swing we'll, it'll feel good yeah yeah but when it starts when you start getting into the intricacies of it and the conversations like I'll watch someone like him or Ronald Bruno Jr. is another good guy mm-hmm. for for jazz or Mike Mitchell. I mean, there's a bunch of different ones, but like you'll sit there and you're like, man, well, why did he do that? Mm-hmm. Or then it's just kind of like a jazz thing, even understanding how to tune your drums yeah. for jazz. Yeah. And how yeah. to orchestrate them. And it is, it is a different world. Yeah. And I kind of feel like church is everything else mm-hmm. except jazz. Right. Like, because gospel is not about the sound of the music as much as it is about the message. Uh-huh. So with gospel, especially today, you know, it encompasses so many things. Like, it's the R&B. It's the pop. Yeah. It's the rock. It's everything besides jazz. Uh-huh. You know, um, so if you grew up in church... You did all of that. Man, my undergrad and my sophomore year kicked my butt because I was entrenched in, okay, um, Advanced Techniques for the Modern Drummer. Yeah. Was that book, Stick Control, mm-hmm. and Syncopation. Yeah. Those were my Bibles. Those were the ones. <laughs> those were my, I still work out of those books now, um, but the books that I work out of now... Um, the new breed stuff, the that, Gary Chester stuff. You are not the first drummer to mention that on this podcast, man. Yeah, those books—they they totally destruct you, right? Yeah, but the way they build you back up, mm-hmm. and it's so unassuming because I would be—I'm sitting behind the kid and I'm playing something, and then some of that new breed stuff sneaks in, and you're like, "Oh, wait a minute, that, <laughs> that, just, that just happened." Yeah, and then it takes you right out. That's page thirty-two. <laughs> You know, yeah, um, Gary Chumney, who I take lessons from from time to time. Anytime you talk about that interrogation, like some people are very self-directed and, you know, they can do that on their own. Mm-hmm. I kind of still need the person with the two uh, 18 inch millimeter rulers slapping in your hand saying, why are you doing that? <laughs> Gary Chumney's that guy for me. Yeah. So he introduced me to the Gary Chester books and um, just how it deconstructs you will make you feel like okay why am I doing this and why didn't I keep doing why didn't I keep teaching mm-hmm. because there's so much yeah you know but when you have a Dave Wuckle saying yo this book kicked my butt yeah yeah you know yeah um, and like two of the guys in Atlanta that I respect the most Marlon Patton yep. and Darren Stanley like I see I haven't met him I've heard his name but I haven't met him well both those guys just live by that book wow. I, I think the new breed too especially man um, but yeah Darren I, I interviewed him maybe a year ago mm-hmm. he, he toured with uh, Colonel Bruce okay until Colonel Bruce died right um, and he plays a lot with Kevin Scott and, and doing like experimental improvisational stuff and maybe He's, that's where the name came up yeah with Kevin yeah yeah, yeah. Darren is a machine man He's Man. just like his whole body is just like it's like an athlete. It's like a like when you see an athlete where there's no wasted motion, sure. not an ounce of fat, sure. and just like and he's a tall, spindly guy. Like right. he's not a buff dude. Right. But you see him behind the drums and it's just it's he's like a straight it's a terminator. It's like a BMW man. Just <laughs> <laughs> 
German engineering. Um, okay, so you mentioned the gospel chops thing mm-hmm. or the gospel style, and before we before we turn the mic on, you were saying how like that term has become somewhat derogatory or yeah. has a negative context in, yeah. in the musical world. Um, and my question to you is is whether or not you think that's deserved. So what I will say is that there are some drummers that have embraced the term. Let, let me say it a different way. Yes and no. Um, you know, you, you've heard the, the adage, uh, a couple of spoiled apples will spoil the bunch. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what's happened. Um, the, the connotation of gospel drummer um, is, for whatever reason, now synonymous with inconsistent, unprofessional, overplaying, overplaying. Yeah. And, um, well, that's interesting. Like I, I mentioned overplaying, but you're, you're talking about sort of non-musical things. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because it, it, it is for whatever reason it's become that. And it's not everybody because I will tell you right now, Zach, if I don't play in church, the training that you get in church is so much like the road. And that's why you have so many drummers that were bred in church that are so road ready. Mm-hmm. Um, if you take, there's so many different things to look at, you know, um, church definitely being a, 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 um, a ground from, for proving the competition is immense. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember sitting on the front row at church and there were four guys on the front row vying to play drums yeah you get what i'm saying yeah um so you get the competition aspect which means that if you wanted to play that I mean you had to be there early mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and you had to know the song that they were going to do during offering which meant that you had to do some level of research right sounds familiar yeah so in addition to that you also had to practice because you wanted you wanted your shot. Mm-hmm. And if you got on and you blew your shot, it might be another two, three weeks before you even saw any playing time again. Yeah. Um, so it, it was a breeding ground for competition. I think competition, I think Barry Gordy um, coined the phrase competition creates champions, hmm. you know, um, and he was talking about, um, you know, during his Motown days, like yeah. all of his artists were, they were together, but they were also competing. Right. And because they competed against each other, they all were champions mm-hmm. in their in their whether it be on the road or on with their records. Yeah. And um, that's what was created. Number one, and I think the other thing is because the best drummers played, you worked so hard to be one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think some of it is deserved, uh, particularly now because you got social media. So things are a lot more accessible. So you do have guys that kind of fall right into the stigma that has become a a, a gospel drummer. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, I would be you would be hard pressed to find any gig, regardless of genre, that doesn't have a gospel player on their stage. Um, the overplaying, I think, is a for every for every over player that is a gospel drummer, I can probably think of another one that's not that, that didn't come right out. So I think that's more of a personality and a, a mindset choice. Yeah, yeah. But the stigma is definitely the overplaying, nonchalant, 
not hearing beyond the drums or mm-hmm. their instrument type yeah. thing. Just um, kind of professionally lax. Yes. Now, so do you think do you think those negative attributes really are more prevalent in the gospel world than in the jazz world or the rock world or any anything else, or or do you think it's a it's an unfair uh, stigma? I think it's unfair. However, what I will say is that some of us have not done a great job of debunking that stigma. Mm-hmm. Um, because because I've been blessed to play in a lot of different areas. I've played in a rock band, I've played in jazz bands, and I've been around bass players in the jazz world that overplay yeah. or that show up late. Right. I've been in rock bands where the guitarist comes in and doesn't know any of the music. Yeah. You know, and this is the last rehearsal before the gig, Uh you know. So for me, I'm looking at it from more of a global view simply because I've not only been in gospel. I cut my teeth in this industry in gospel, but because I've been able to branch out and understand other genres of music, I've been in situations that honestly people are just people. Mm -hmm. You know, either you're going to be late or you're going to be on time. Right. You know, either you're going to learn the music or you're not. You know, so I think it has less to do with genre and more to do with personality and that person, that person's um, will to mm-hmm. be better. Yeah. Like um, I grew up in an era where you didn't want to be the weakest link. Yeah. You know, so for me, regardless if I'm playing a jazz gig or I'm doing a pop tour, if I'm going to show up on time, when I'm showing up on time simply because. That's an extension of me, mm-hmm. you know, and it goes into exactly what your your podcast is being a working drummer. It's on you. No one cares about your excuses. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm stuck in traffic. Well, if you would have left early, you wouldn't even be in this situation. Right. Or, oh, man, I came in late. Well, if you would have started learning the music when you got it, as opposed to listening to it in the car on the way to the rehearsal, you wouldn't yeah. be in this situation. Yeah. Unfortunately, I just kind of feel like um, because it started off in the gospel community, I don't even say it started off in the gospel community, but um, because the stigma was originated in the gospel community, you know, that's where that's where it lives. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we can go back and we can talk about uh, James Jamison being drunk out of his mind, playing some of the most, you know, amazing bass lines. He literally played what's going on drunk on the floor right right you know that's not gospel yeah you get what i'm saying Uh so um i don't think i i think we should stop and and i think this is just a microcosm of the state of our our world we need to stop looking at people and cultures and look at persons Mm -hmm. look at individuals and judge that person based on their merit and the things that they do as opposed to Oh, he's a black guy that blue came in church. He's gonna he's gonna come in and chop all over the gig. Right. And then when you don't do that, then it's all of a sudden, oh, you know, you're more you're more uh, surprised that that didn't happen. Yeah. And if you don't know me and you walk in and you shame on you, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm on the gig, you know, give me the opportunity to do what I do and not based on your experience with someone else that possibly looked like me. Right, and you can surprise people in that way before you even sit down at the drums. Mm-hmm. Like like you said, and we've said it on the podcast a million times, you know, success in this business is kind of like 70-80% dependent on everything that happens before you play. Absolutely. Being on time, learning your shit, 
and being a good hang. <laughs> like before you play a note. So if, you know, with, with those three things, if, if a band, like if, you know, you come in and they're expecting gospel chops guy mm-hmm. who, you know, is probably going to be late, mm-hmm. may or may not have learned the music, mm-hmm. may or may not have a chip on his shoulder mm-hmm. and you show up and none of that's true mm-hmm. before you even play a note, mm-hmm. um, that that's, that's just a way that you can start fighting against that stigma. Absolutely. From one gig at, walk in the door. One gig at a time. And that's, that's what I, I especially in new situations, mm-hmm. you know, um, I want to surprise people yeah, yeah, because I know what they see. Even when you're in the boardroom with these, with these artist reps, you know, I want them to be like, wow, he's nothing like I thought he was going to be, mm-hmm. you know, because what that does, I kind of feel like in this world, we are here to make things better for each other. So if I can have a conversation with someone or I can have an musical encounter with someone and it changes their outlook on something it makes it better for the next guy. Mm-hmm. You get yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. So um, I, I think a lot of times, and it's comfortable, it's comfortable to look at our differences and be like, okay, everybody that looks like that guy or everybody that plays like that, that's what they are, that's what it is, right. and that's what it's going to be. Right. But if one person, if I can come in and for a split second get you to think whatever you were programmed to think, the next person that comes behind me is going to get a bit more of an objective view. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, now it's the pressures on that guy not to reinforce right. because <laughs> that one time he does something wrong, I knew it. And right. then it starts all you over. Did, you did your part. Right. The next guy may or may not. Right. But once again, that's an individual thing. Yeah. You know, um, so to answer your question directly, I think some of it is deserved, but I think it's unfair to paint with a broad stroke. Yeah. You know, um, simply be, you can't do that in any other industry. Mm-hmm. You can't do that in life, period. You know, I can't look at, you look at all of the police brutalities that are happening. I can't look at every cop and say that they're bad. Right. Simply because this guy decided to be stupid that day. Mm-hmm. You know, no more than when I go into a department store can they see because I'm a black guy, he's going to steal something. Right, right. You know? Well, it's interesting you made the cop analogy because, like, absolutely we want to hold individuals responsible mm-hmm. and not uh, not paint everybody with the same brush. But, like, in, in uh, you know, there's, there's a debate about whether or not there are systemic things in place mm. in, in the police community sure. that kind of cause some of these individuals sure. to go that way. Do you think that's, that it's... In terms of um, in terms of the negative aspects mm-hmm. of, of you know the word gospel, sure. are there aspects of that community that kind of reinforce that negative behavior? That Absolutely, we're playing the any of that. Absolutely, um, I I, th- I think um, and I think it's just a part of the competition thing that we were talking about. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, getting the shine or right. getting the notice. Yeah, you know. Um, some of the greatest musicians that I've ever had the privilege of meeting have been birthed out of the gospel movement. Mm-hmm. Um, just from a sheer playing ability. Mm-hmm. It's like some of the things that I've seen. It's like, wait a minute, what? Yeah. How how were you able to do that? Um, but I think what happens is when you're looking like what you did last week was great. 
you know, but you've already done that. Mm-hmm. What can you do now yeah. to continue to get that? And I think it just kind of feeds this entire cycle of, okay, well, I did a two bar. I did a two beat feel to bring in a verse in. And that was cool then. Right. But now everybody's doing that. It's how am I going to get, how am I going to get noticed? How am I going to get noticed? How am I going to set myself apart? Sure. Yeah. And not, you know, uh, and not letting the music win. Then it becomes an individual thing. Right. You know, um, being a music director now in so many situations, you know, you'll have guys that don't listen beyond their own instrument. Mm -hmm. Like, dude, you literally just took two bar, a two bar chop. In the middle of a verse. (laughs) You know? And that's the part where, I mean, it's deserved some. Right. But not every drummer is going to do that. Right. Right. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like, if there's a lead singer, if it's not your band, and it's not a lead, and there's a lead singer, there's no way you're supposed to be taking a two-bar anything Mm -hmm. in a verse. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. So, um, I think there are some things, but I think it can't. It was kind of birthed out of competition because you still have this look at me. Yeah. Particularly from the drums, because I don't care where you go, there are always a million drummers. Yep. Like when I first moved here, the first ten people I met were drummers, Mm -hmm. and it just made me want to pack up my little U-Haul and go home. (laughs) Like these guys have been here. Yeah. And I'm thinking. You know, um, when I graduated from high school, you know, it was the mid-90s and the Olympics just had happened. And Atlanta was in its musical renaissance, as I call it. Uh You know, there wasn't one piece of R&B that was not touched by Atlanta. Yeah. You know, you had a lot of your producers here. A lot of your labels were here. Babyface, L.A. Reid, Diddy was here. I mean, everybody was here. So... I wanted to go. Yeah, hey, I'm going to Atlanta. Right. Mom was like, you're going where the scholarship tells you to go. <laughs> you know? So, um, where did you go to college? University of Miami. Okay. Yeah. So, um, although I did meet Jonathan at FIU. So, I did like um, a summer and a couple of uh, a couple of semesters at FIU where I met him mm-hmm. and then transferred over along with um, Ludwig Alfonso, who's an incredible drummer. Um plays with um, Oz Noy and um, Spyro Gyra. And mm-hmm. That was his first gig after he graduated. Man, Oz Noy gets around the drummers. He really does. Darren Stanley is playing with Oz Noy right now. Get out of here. Yeah. Now yeah. I gotta meet him. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's doing this. Oz Noy has a, a project with uh, Rye Thistlewaite, who's like a mm-hmm. keyboard player, mm-hmm. Australian yep. singer-songwriter, or maybe New Zealand. Um, so they're doing this kind of like fusion-y, poppy... Uh, trio. Oh with, my god. With, with those three guys. To be a fly on the wall in the rehearsal. Like you were saying, you know, you, you get to Atlanta and you meet all these drummers. Like I had I had the same experience where I'm looking around like, does Atlanta need me? You know, right. like all these dudes who have been here for a long time. Right. And working their asses off. Right. And it turns out yeah, yeah. Atlanta does need me, and it speaks to the scene here and kind of the infrastructure. There's there's a lot of work here. Yes, um, for for somebody like you in 2010 or me two and a half years ago mm-hmm. to just like show up and and get to work. Well, so so let me speak to that. So I think it's exactly what we were talking about. The eighty percent. Uh huh. Um. So 
I think it's not only that, but I think it's it's our industry. I mean, the field gets really flooded really fast when you're not your own thing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, when you sound like someone else, yeah, field gets real flooded. But when you become your own version of dopeness, when you become your own version of what the what the industry needs. Th- it just opens up for you. Right. Like, so me being a drummer, it's a bunch of drummers here. Um, but just out of a basic function of taking these gigs and these uh, producers and these managers and, okay, who's going to run stems? I distinctly remember um, we were brought in as a group, mm-hmm. like bass, keys, drums, and guitar. We were brought in as a group. And the manager was like, okay, who's going to run stems? I just had this feeling that if if somebody didn't step up and say we we're going to do it, we're all going to be without work. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah, I, you know, I can do it. And then we started talking through the process and we got the gig. Yeah. You know, at that time I had a PC and a 16. I had a personal computer, an MPC and a 1680. No Pro Tools. Yeah. I was using Audacity. Wow. The, the free... Freeware that you used to right. get on PC, yeah, yeah. but I knew that if I didn't say something, I was going to be out of work. Yeah, and from a selfish point, I honestly didn't care about them. Yeah, I needed this this job. Right, right. So um, that kind of birthed the whole programming aspect. Mm-hmm. That for I don't know how it happened or when it happened. I don't know when the newsletter went out. But, like, I'm the programmer, drummer guy. Right. So you found a way. That's a perfect example of another thing we talk about all the time, which is finding ways to make yourself indispensable. Sure. It's not always that you play the drums unlike anyone else right. in the world, and we have to have the guy who plays the drums that way. Right. Um, it's, it's often about, like, just, you know, demonstrating... Uh, a skill or an attribute other than playing. Sure. It's like, yes, you can play. The drums we're not worried about. Right. How what what else can you contribute? Sure. Absolutely. And a lot of times they don't even ask. You you offer. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, I know how to do this. I can program this. I can write this. Um and like if you find a way to make yourself indispensable. It it man, I will tell you, it has the first gig that I did it on, um, from a programming not in Programming, I, th- I think the definition of programming has been skewed. Mm-hmm. Programming is not just hitting the space bar at the gig. Right, right. It is taking the stems and making them stage ready. Yeah. Whether that means getting the original stems or creating them from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, I enjoy it. I enjoy it now. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's stressful. I, I kind of feel like it's like the concrete floor. It's like no one ever pays attention to the concrete floor until something goes wrong with it. Yeah, yeah. You know, you we build on top of it. We put amazing tile or wood floors down. <laughs> you know, no one ever walks into a building and says, man, this is a really nice concrete floor. Yeah. This is the flattest, hardest concrete I've ever seen. <laughs> the, but the minute, the minute something goes wrong. The minute that crack, there's a crack or there's a sinkhole or something, yeah. now it gets all of the attention. Mm-hmm. So that's what programming is. So mm-hmm. it's not the vainglorious, oh, I'm a programmer. It's literally after a 12-hour rehearsal, you spend the next 
five to six hours yeah. programming. It's lonely, tedious shit. Yes. <laughs> Painstaking. Yeah. Um, but I honestly feel that it helps me better as a musician. Mm-hmm. Simply as a drummer, I'm hearing things in the music because I'm I'm being intimate with these stems. Like right. I hear things. So which then goes into the musical the musicality of how I play. Mm-hmm. Okay, now I'm hitting a splash on on the end of two. No one's ever did that. Well, Q, why'd you do that? Because the vocalists are singing that syncopation. Yeah. And now it goes from a... Now it's a thing. So anybody that comes in and does that gig has to do that. <laughs> right. You know? <laughs> so yeah. Anthony David was the first person. And it's funny because... Um, I'm now his music director as well, and um, I when we first met, he was like, "I'll never use stems on my stage. Mm. This is not gonna happen." Da 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 da. Whatever. No, no. You can forget it. And he tried one song, mm-hmm. and it changed everything. So from that, you know, that became okay. It was like, okay, well, let me let me get into this a little bit more and see how how far. I can push it mm-hmm. because he's in the soul. He, Avery Sunshine, Algebra Blessed, Kenny Lattimore, they're R&B soul artists. Um, so with that, a lot of their performance is based off of what the crowd is responding to. Right. So it's not like a pop show or a country show where you hit the space bar. and One, one two, three, four, five, six. You can't do that yeah. in the soul and R&B. Right. Um, typically, when you're in your more intimate crowds like a Yoshi's or a City Winery or something like that, you know, you have to allow the show to breathe. Yeah. And the biggest the biggest concern with all of those artists is that the show wouldn't breathe. It would be too rigid. Right. So I had to come up and comprise, devise a plan that allowed them to feel as free as they want to. Yeah. But then still have the benefit of the record sounding exactly like the record when knowing that budgets don't necessarily allow you to have three background singers when you have three-part harmony, mm-hmm. a string section yeah. and a horn section. Right. It's four guys. Mm-hmm. And we got to make all of that happen. So programming allows us to make sure that the audience hears exactly what they were listening to in their car on the way to the show. Mm-hmm. But so it holds the integrity together. You know, there's never a tempo issue because everything is clicked. Right. But having the ability to allow these artists to feel as free as they possibly can. So I call it open programming. Yeah. Which um, I haven't seen anybody else do uh-huh. yet. I know it's coming, but um, definitely in the soul. I think we, I think Anthony David was probably the first one to actually go at it at that angle. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just about hitting the space bar and playing the song all the way through. Right. There are loops, there are repeat parts like, if the audience is really getting on this part, he might want to repeat it a couple yeah, of times yeah. and having the ability to do that, uh-huh. you know. Um, and that's that's the next level of that shit. Because sure. if, you're, if you're playing top to bottom, just going one song after the next, like yeah. enough can go wrong in that scenario. Yes. <laughs> Buttons get you fired, man. Yeah. Buttons yeah, can man. get you fired. Um so, are, are you running this on Ableton? Mm. Oh, absolutely. Uh, okay, talk to me about Ableton, because I, like, I'm the guy you talked about, like, I hit the space bar. Right. I have not dug into Ableton, and and it's it, it just looks like a giant rat's nest of a mystery 
If you give me an hour, I can have you running Ableton. That's how user friendly it is. Okay. Um, the biggest thing about Ableton. Is are, you, the, are you are you busy after this? Let's. <laughs> no, we can, we can dig into it. We can dig into it. You you have no idea how many calls a week I get. Yeah. Whether it be here or abroad. Hey Q, I got an Ableton question. Or a FaceTime or a Skype. Hey man, how do you do? And um a friend of I won't say who it was. I won't say who it was. He was like, Man, you gotta find a way to monetize this because you get a lot of calls. Yeah. You know, but for me it's it's that thing where and I might be naive in this, but I just kinda believe that we're all put here to help each other. Mm-hmm. So me helping someone learn a program, you know. I didn't have anybody to help me. I started out on Ableton when it was at Ableton Five. Well, that's my question. Like, how did you? How did you? Uh, what were your first steps in Ableton? And for somebody listening who doesn't know shit about Ableton, what is your advice? Okay. To to start understanding it. Okay, so the first thing you need to do when you first turn Ableton on is hit the tab button. Because <laughs> seriously, because when Ableton first comes on, what you see is a bunch of squares. Yeah. And Immediately, you're thinking hieroglyphics or Chinese arithmetic. Right. You hit the space bar, it takes you to the side that no, that looks more like Pro Tools or Logic. The space bar or the tab? The tab button. The tab button. Okay. The tab button switches the page. Okay. So, Ableton is made up of two, two parts. And while they work in tandem, they also work independently. Uh-huh. So, going back, a little history. Ableton was developed for DJs. Mm-hmm. So, um, Ableton is probably one of the more powerful DAWs we have out as it relates to live stage. It was built for the stage. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's probably one of the only DAWs that is used the way it was being intended to use. Mm -hmm. Pro Tools was not intended to be the end all that be all of the music industry. Right. It was a studio tool. It was movie soundtracks. Oh, okay. It started off as a two track and that's what it was used for. Wow. And it evolved over the course of time when they realized that, hey, there's a hole in our, we need something here. Mm-hmm. Um, Ableton, however, has the ability to pull from multiple sources in real time and spit that information out almost instantly. Mm-hmm. Um, because with a DJ, you know, a DJ might have a hard drive, you might have something on his desktop, you might have a something over here, over there, and a jump drive, yeah. and being able to pull from those sources allows you, in, in performance mode, um, it's more stable that way. So I would say anybody starting, hit the tap button mm-hmm. and understand the functions of what everything is. Mm-hmm. And it's just like Pro Tools, just like Logic. You have an on and off channel button, you have a solo button, you have a mute button. Understand what those are. Mm-hmm. The function of those never change. Yeah, You know, um, from there... Um, get into what you need. You know, mm-hmm. if you're just like, understand where their automation is. Logic and Pro Tools is at the top. Ableton is at the bottom. Mm-hmm. If you know Pro Tools, you're halfway there because the key, the key prompts are, pr- the quick keys are pretty similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you understand one really well, it'll be really easy once you know where everything is. Mm-hmm. So familiarize yourself with where everything is and the function will happen um anybody that knows me will tell you i was a hardware guy yeah don't put a laptop on my stage <laughs> give me a 1680 give me an mpc and let me go to work right ableton was the first software daw that i found as stable as hardware hmm. 
um, most Pro Tools and Logic included, when you hit the space bar, there's a little bit of a latency from when it starts. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times you have to start it a little early just with the click just to make sure I can count as a human. I can say one, two, three, four. When I hit that space bar, Ableton is going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And because of that and because of their use of MIDI, there are other things we can do. Like I can get to a part and say, hey, look, I want you to repeat this part once you get there. Repeat that until I tell you to stop. And you can do that. As a drummer, you know how it is, especially if you're hitting the space bar. You get to the end of the song and you have to finish the song strong. Uh-huh. It's kind of hard to do that and choreograph a space bar hit. Yeah. You know, <laughs> with Ableton, I can say, hey, at the end of the song, stop and wait for my next command. Mm. So it has the live musician in mind. Right. You know, right. Um, for drummers, is it is it more important to be able to... Uh, kind of construct shit on Ableton from scratch or to be able to work your way around something that somebody else has constructed? Both. Really? I would say both because most of the times when you're working with an artist, they have their stems. Right. So you're going to need to be able to orchestrate and move around what's given to you. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes the stems that they have are the stems and that's what they want. And you have to work with that. Mm -hmm. Certain times, there are artists who may only have a two-track. And that two-track has everything in it. So you have to recreate all of those things just so that you can have the ability to um, route those to different things. Like typically, my basic setup is um, percussion or drums on one channel, additional guitars, additional keys, background vocals, Mm -hmm. sound effects. You know, and being able to have each one of those go to their own channel so the front of house engineer can mix those things as if you had a second guitarist on stage. Right, right. So now you're getting into the sonic, the sonic ability of the show just goes to a a different level. Right. And then the artist saying, yeah, I want to hear my backgrounds. Right, because if you've got your percussion and your background vocals and your second guitar all on one of two tracks, then... There's no adjustability. Right. You're you're, ha- you're handcuffing yourself. Right. You know, um, that's why even if in certain situations, um, smaller situations where I'm only being given two ch- channels, I still want to have everything on a separate track because I can actually mix it from the computer. Mm-hmm. Like the sound engineer will be like, hey, the vocals are too hot here. Mm-hmm. And I can go right in there and I can turn it down myself. So that we still get some level of control. Yeah. Having a bounce down of a two track in certain situations is not going to cut it. You know, mm-hmm. so um, I would say start off with familiarizing yourself with the with it's just like any software. Just the navigation. Of just it. the navigation of mm-hmm. it, because it is different. Um, those two sides, like I said, you look at one side as your they call it the arrangement side. And then the other side is called the clip side, because from the clip side, you're able to import samples Mm -hmm. and trigger them on your own. Mm -hmm. That's for a DJ. But if we're using a traditional sense of how programmers use Pro Tools and Logic on the road, it's your mixer side. So when you look at the bottom, you have a bunch of faders. Mm -hmm. Those faders correspond to the channels on the other side. So it's a channel strip. 
Yeah. You know, um, and depending on the situation, if I'm doing it for a worship service, I might launch all of my stems from the clip side versus if I'm doing an R&B show where we have repeats and all of that stuff, I might run it from the arrangement side. Right. So understanding what the program does opens the door. And then at that point, because Ableton is such an amazing program, you can use it however you see fit. Mm-hmm. This is the other thing I've heard about it is that like you can open one person's Ableton file and it's constructed a certain way and it looks a certain way mm-hmm. and it behaves a certain way mm-hmm. and open somebody else's Ableton file and it's completely different. Yep. Which for you know for drummers can be a, a huge pain in the ass. Sure. Because it's almost like you have to learn it all over again. Sure. But the the positive side of that is just it sounds infinitely customizable. Absolutely. It's it's one of those things between the key commands and the MIDI prompts. You can almost do anything you want to do, and um, I had I had a a guy it was a purist. He was like, "Man, you're using that wrong." <laughs> and I was just kind of like, "How can I be using something wrong if it's giving me the result, the desired result?" Right. You know, um, I was like, "Is it a mixed thing?" He was like, "No, it's how you have everything set up." I was like, "Well, show me how you have it set up." And he sat down. I was like, "Now." With all due respect, I could say you're using it wrong. Yeah. You know, like you went through five more steps when you could have just hit Apple E and Mm -hmm. got rid of the whole thing. And then he was like, how'd you do that? (laughs) You're using it wrong. (laughs) How's it feel? (laughs) You know, um, but from that, from that, from that aspect, definitely um, having the ability to be able to number out like one through nine. Hey. Okay, when I hit the number one, it's going to jump to song one. Mm -hmm. When I hit number two, it's going to jump to song two. I'm going to hit the arrow. That means it's going to repeat back to the last marker. Mm. You know, those things allow you to concentrate more on the performance than the actual technical side of it. And I think for drummers, like being able to like this, this is what I have to do. These Mm -hmm. are the steps I have to take is like learn how to create a marker Mm -hmm. in Ableton so that if the MD is like, hey, let's go back to there after the second chorus, Mm -hmm. you can be like, okay, I'm going to put a marker here. You Mm -hmm. know how to do that Mm -hmm. shit. Because right now at at, at a church gig that I play, Mm -hmm. like I, you know, I'm just hitting one Mm -hmm. and then I hit two and anything in that program needs to be adjusted or changed or whatever. The MD comes around behind me and (laughs) and I try to watch him and like see what he's doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's it's in that like you said it's in that format before you hit the tab which I didn't know about which is great to know about right. so I look at this screen and I just immediately go snow blind right. I'm like I, I see everything and I see nothing it exactly I got you no one hour one hour <laughs> one hour and you know exactly what he's doing yeah you know yeah yeah the biggest thing is just knowing where everything is on Pro Tools and mm-hmm. Logic your channel strip is on the left mm-hmm. able to on the right yeah. Yeah. All of your automation stuff is on the bottom in Ableton. You know, having the ability to run the same session from two different sides, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, wait a minute, why why is this happening? And um, from a live point, knock on wood, <laughs> um, I've never had Ableton crash on me. Wow. Ever. That's amazing. Anthony David's 90-minute show. I would say 95% of his show is tracked out. And because I just told you I like everything to be on a separate channel, mm-hmm. when you look at my sessions, they look like colorful stair steps. Mm-hmm. Um, let's say song one, 
track one through eight, song two, nine through 16, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. 10 songs, 90 tracks. CPU usage may be 5%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if my CPU usage is 5%, that means I'm not hitting the hard drive at all. Huh. And because I'm not hitting the hard drive at all, the computer has no reason to crash. Right. Yeah. Cool. So it's more stable. It's like Ableton is built to take on more than what we're taking it through. Right. It is built to have to process in real time multiple samples coming from multiple destinations. Mm -hmm. So for me to have it in this nice little neat folder, everything named, and all it's doing is playing over what it already knows is coming up. It's like going to the gym, lifting 225 pounds, and someone says, I give you 100 100 bucks if you can lift this 10-pound barbell five times. Give me my money. Right. It's over with. Yeah, yeah. And that's what Ableton is. Mm -hmm. It was built for the stage. How I use it, I don't think that they necessarily, because I signed a deal with um, Ableton maybe about six months ago, and I was talking to the guy. He was like, wait, what? Are you, how are you doing this? What are you doing? How? Because the capability is there, but I think a lot of times when people create something, they create it from a point of their own need. Mm-hmm. Um, I needed to make this do something else because I was playing drums. Mm-hmm. I don't have time to look at a screen. So I MIDI mapped my stop, my start, my repeat buttons to my SPDS pad. Hmm. So I'm not looking at the screen. I'm not hitting the space bar. I'm hitting the pad. Yeah. Tony Royster does the same thing on, on the Katie Katie. Katie Perry's gig. My, my buddy is the keyboardist on that gig. Yeah. yeah. When they came to Atlanta, I I got to hang with him a little bit. And Tony was talking about how like he, he got hired to play drums, Mm -hmm. but like we were talking about making yourself indispensable they kind of found out that he could do this stuff mm-hmm. and he could fire some stuff and program some stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm pretty sure he's doing it all with, with pads. Like you're yeah, talking about. It, it is, it is a basic, it is a basic function of the more you can do, the more inexpendable you become. Right. You know, now, just to play devil's advocate. Sure. Do you find yourself ever on a gig where you're like, man, I wish we didn't have to fuck with this Ableton. I wish we could just play the songs. You know, so for me, no, and I'll tell you why. Because I love it so much. I love the programming so much. Right, you geek out on it. I geek, I, I do. Yeah. I really geek out on it. Yeah. Um, and for me, there's a beauty. Like I never forget because Ableton is also the only program on the market that handles key changes and tempo changes well. Mm-hmm. Like I can literally take a song and put it in any tempo I want to, mm-hmm. and it still sound like it was recorded in that tempo. Yeah, yeah. And same thing with the key changes. Like, if the vocalist doesn't have it that night and they want to take it down a half step mm-hmm. or a whole step or two whole steps, I can do that right. with a hit of a button. Right. You know, so... There's another thing that a drummer should know how to do. Like, oh, we're in D. We got to do it in C. Bop. Done. You know, so... So, uh, this is this is encouraging to me. Because, <laughs> because Ableton, like, to, to me, and I'm sure to a bunch of people listening, just seems like this huge, scary monster. No. But if you, like, you don't have to know how to do everything on it. it like, just learn a few things that you're going to need to know how to do on a gig. Will you be able to construct a stem from scratch? No. But if the MD turns to you and says, go down a half step, if you know how to do that, man, that... <laughs> man, the, the hardest thing I've ever had to do on Ableton... And this happened. I was in Portland, and um, 
this guy sent me the session and they did not record to a click track. <laughs> they did not record to a click track and they wanted to do overdubs. So you're trying to put Ableton with <laughs> So he sent me he sent me he sent me this, the files out of Pro Tools. Yeah. And there was no like the tempo started one place, it went somewhere else, it went somewhere else, it went God knows where, and then mm-hmm. it came back. With Ableton, I was able to put that entire session on the grid. Oh, man. Wow. It took a little time. Yeah. But to have that ability yeah, yeah. is mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't even think they understand the monster that they created when they made it. Right. You know, mm-hmm. um, th- that ability, like no one thinks, okay, if I'm recording in Pro Tools, I'm putting on the click track, you right. know. Right. Um, now, there is something said about musical breathing, uh-huh. but because I'm a nerd, um, like even to the point like we'll, I'll be in a session, in a collaboration session with someone and the metronome will just be going, the click track will just be going and I'm going on about my business and the artist or producer like, yeah, could you could you turn that off? Like, what are you, what are you talking about? Oh, you mean the click track? Mm. I live by the click track. <laughs> like I make my money because of the click track, yeah, and without yeah. that click track, you know things are done. Mm-hmm. You know, um, even um, I'm doing more Broadway stuff now. I'm more musical theater things now, yeah. and I think that was probably one of the um, one of my selling points yeah. was that I was able to create the loops that were used um, and run the show on click. Right. You know, now I did that in Ableton and then bounced everything down and then used my SPDSX. Mm-hmm. Now I've been thinking about um been thinking about doing something like a um like a video about talking about these SPDSX pads, mm-hmm. these pads or the DTX or whatever. It's more than just snaps and claps and one one shots. Right. You can do so much with these pads. Right. But because we don't dive into them, it's like keyboard players. They're always rushing out there to get the, the greatest and the best when if they just take the keyboard they have right. and dig into those sounds mm-hmm. and understand the full function of the gear that they have, yep. they wouldn't feel so compelled to go out there and get the new keyboard simply because it has the sound. Right. And I think it's the same thing with the SPDS. I've ran stems from the SPDS and got four outs of it. On yeah. It. Zach Danziger is, is queuing like video shit. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, man. Like, but because, because we want it easy. Like, we don't want to have to dig into it. Right. You know. Right. We want to hit something with a stick. That's it. That's what we do. We're cavemen. <laughs> That's what we are. <laughs> I'm enhanced caveman because I like I like I like the geek I like the, the the geek part of it. Right. You're you're a digital caveman. I am. You can you can construct the digital stem, but you still want to hit it with a stick. I am. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, and you said you said something um, uh, as far as uh, the, we were talking about the co- the concrete floor. Mm-hmm. I never forget the first time um, we were doing an Anthony David song, and he was like, "Yeah, I feel like I want it to be faster." And I did it, and I got so excited, and the rest of the band is looking at me like, oh, okay, you made it faster. <laughs> right. But up until that point, 
Like, that wasn't an issue. Mm-hmm. If the song was too slow, you had to stop the track. Right. The bottom falls out. And now... You, so you were able to do it on the fly? Yeah. Like, you... Wow. That Like, so with the case in point, with the Avery Sunshine gig, um, she's an amazing songstress, but she also plays. So she's one of the band members. Mm-hmm. And um, we have to have the ability to adapt to her. Um, because sometimes, you know, because she's playing... She might jump right into a verse instead of doing the intro that we set up mm-hmm. in Ableton. So having those fail safes to know, okay, where is she? Okay, go. Mm. And, you know, and now now we're back on because there are no background singers. It's us and the bots. Right. You know, so having that ability to do those things on the fly. Now, definitely, that's expert boss level. Yeah. A hundred times over, but the more time you spend with the machine off of the stage, the easier it becomes. Right. Like we've literally had people come to the stage like, man, who was running programming? Like we didn't see anybody touching anything, mm-hmm. you know, and that's because I spent so much time with it off the stage that it, it becomes an extension of my drum kit. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. even the box, my, my interface box that I constructed, like I didn't have anybody to glean from. So um, for me, I was just doing what made sense in my mind. But to go and look at a new edition rehearsal and see that the box that I created was pretty much the same thing that they used on the tour. Mm -hmm. Let me know, okay, I'm in the right vein. I'm doing what I need to do. But then what happens is, like you were saying, you don't have to know how to do everything. You just have to to know how to do a a few basic functions. Yeah. But what happens is your pursuit of knowledge becomes more like, okay, well, if I can do that. Right. You build on it. What else can I do? Yeah. You know, um, doing the programming for the new edition tool was rough though. Um, simply because they were doing songs that they had never done before. And when they did those songs, those songs were on that. Hmm. So we didn't have stems. So I remember, um, not my type of girl and crucial, which were two songs that they wanted to do on the All Sits Tour. Now, let me be clear. I was not the programmer. Mm-hmm. I was assisting the music director with some new stuff because they had the programmer in another room. Mm-hmm. But he gave me some assignments. And one of them was to recreate this very iconic drum track. And it wasn't that the tem- it was not just a tambourine. It was the timbre of the tambourine. Yeah. So, And it wasn't pitch. It was frequency. Huh. So going in and messing with the envelope... And the frequency to get it to sound kind of detuned, uh-huh. you know, to sound just like it. Right. So we're in rehearsal like, man, how did you get the tambourine? Where, where'd you get the stems from? Mm-hmm. I had to make them. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. that's what in because they've been touring forever. Obviously, they've had stems that were created before. Mm-hmm. But in that situation, when you ask me, hey, you know. Is it best to know how to do it from scratch or know how to work? In that situation, it was both of them. Right. You know? Right. So I guess, I mean, you're you're the wrong guy to ask if, if uh, uh, you know, things like Ableton are causing live music to be over-engineered. <laughs> I would still say yes. <laughs> I would still say yes. And I'll tell you why. I like to use programming as... This might make some women upset, but I don't care. <laughs> I like to use programming the way I like to see women wear makeup. Yeah. Not even know you have it on. Right. Right. I shouldn't be able to look at your drummer and tell that he's not playing the pattern. Mm-hmm. 
Like, I hear a crash, but I don't see one moving. Right. Or I'm looking at your keyboard player's hands, and he's playing a sus chord, but I hear a major chord. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, those type of things. Now, tomato, tomato. Some people love it, and I can't tell them they're wrong because they're out just packing out arenas doing this thing, right? Yeah, yeah. But for me, I think... Your band should still be... Case in point, yesterday... Well, day before yesterday, I was on a a duo gig with um, Anthony, David, and Algebra. And um, the band is playing the songs. Now, I I have the programming in my ears. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking they hear it. They don't because the front of house engineer has not enabled it in the house. Mm -hmm. So we're playing and everybody's talking about how great it sounds and how thick it sounds. And, oh my God... And um, the music director looks at me and says, we can't hear the tracks. I was like, you can't hear them. I hear them. And I take off my headphones. And we were literally playing the songs Hmm. like the record. Right. So programming, in my opinion, should be more of an enhancement than a crutch. Yeah. What happens is, oh, it's in the track. Mm-hmm. And they don't worry about playing it. I remember another situation I was in, and I'm looking at the tracks. I come in, I'm playing drums. And like, oh, you program? Look at our programming. And I look, and the guitarist is literally doubling what he's playing on the stem. Mm-hmm. I was like, so why do we have this in the stem if you're playing that? Uh-huh. I don't know. Take that out. So. Is that come back in the room after about an hour of me doing reconstructive surgery on this session? It was like, man, it sounds the it sounds just as big, but it's cleaner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I like what you said about it's 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 a supplement. It's an enhancement. Mm-hmm. It's not a replacement. You still got to play. Yeah, you still got to play. I think too many bands like use it as a as a replacement for things. And if you take it to an extreme, like at at what point does it cease to be live music? Right. And become just listening to a recording. Right. In a room. Right. Like if there if if there are six instruments on uh you know on on Ableton mm-hmm. and two musicians on stage. Mm-hmm. Like, right to me, that's like barely still live music. Absolutely, you know? I agree with you there. I think there it's a dance, and so the dance is the audience is coming to hear a particular product, right? But the dance is still being live musicians, right? Well, I'm I'm going to challenge the premise of of your point. Okay, like is is the audience coming to hear? Those songs exactly as they are on the Well, not those songs. So let me let me clarify. When I say they're coming to hear those songs, there are just certain things that make those songs those songs. Yes, absolutely. You get what I'm saying? So, like, if this song is featuring a horn section Mm -hmm. and you don't have a horn section, and without that horn section, this song is not what it is, Mm -hmm. you have to do something. Yeah. You, um, so, ba- case in point, both the Anthony David and the the Avery Sunshine situation, their background vocals are very complex. To pull that off, you would need three to four background singers. Mm-hmm. Now, what does that mean? From a financial standpoint, that's four more flights, that's four more hotels, that's four more sets of per diem, yeah. that's four um, 
That's four attitudes. <laughs> you know, yeah, four more sets of problems. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so with that, you especially know. Especially with singers. Especially with singers. <laughs> I'm not talking about you, Avery. Anthony, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about those other people. I said it. He didn't. <laughs> um, but you have a responsibility to make sure that you can put the best product out. Right. You know, so for us, some of those songs are just click track and background vocals. Mm-hmm. You get what I'm saying? Or the last album that Avery recorded, all of the strings and the horns were done by string sections right. or horn sections. Yeah, We are a rhythm section. We're a traveling rhythm section. So to have a dope, solid rhythm section and then you have the live horns on the stem or the live strings on the ballot enhances. Right. But we're still playing. If we don't play... What you hear on the stems is not going to make sense whatsoever. Right, right. Versus some situations where you have three keyboard players and you, there's no way you should have three keyboard players on stage and you still have stems on your yes. keyboard stems. Yeah. So for me, that's where I see exactly what you're talking about. I think when used correctly, I think it is an enhancement. You know, um, and I guess my point is, I I could be wrong, but I think that audiences are generally more forgiving about discrepancies or disparities between a recorded version of something and a live version sure. of something than we think they are. Sure. As musicians, like we want to hear that sound, we want to get that sure. sound, we want to get that home mm-hmm. background, like we want it all. Mm-hmm. But from the audience standpoint, like if they hear the song. You know, maybe maybe that maybe that horn line is played by the guitarist. Mm-hmm. You know, as long as they sure hear, like there are ways to to still present a great live version of that Absolutely. song without digging into Ableton or whatever else and, mm-hmm. and just reconstructing the entire recording. Well, I will say this as well: as much as we play for the audience, we are also playing for ourselves yeah. as musicians. Yeah. And I think. What it is, it becomes a... Now, I know some artists that don't want any of the sounds that they recorded to sound like that at all. Right. They're like, I already did that. Yes. I did that in the studio. Why? I, man, I was touring with um, Shantae Moore. And Shantae Moore had a couple of albums out. And we got into the rehearsal. And we were locked into what we heard. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I don't want to hear that. She's like, I want to hear what you bring to it. Like... I want something different. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And there are some artists that are like that. And then you have the other artists. Listen, this is what it sounds like on here. Play this. Yep. And for me, it's, um, I, I run into that more with the smooth jazz stuff. Come believe it or not. I do quite a few smooth jazz gigs Uh and just by the economics of it all, they typically use pickup bands from each city or right. they'll identify a music director and that music director will get guys together. So I've been um, benefited by that. Mm-hmm. Um, so they all come in with stems, you know, and without and typically they're coming in day of. So the sound check becomes the run through of the rehearsal. Right. So a lot of times like, look, play what's on the chart, play what you hear. Yeah. I don't want anything else. Right. If I want something else, I ask for it. Right. Which, in a way, is a relief. Like anytime, anytime I'm on a gig and and I am given marching orders <laughs> and it is perfectly clear what yeah. I have to do, I'm like, cool. Yep. No guesswork. Yep. <laughs> yep. But even in that, like there there there's a line between playing what you hear and interpreting it 
that particular way mm-hmm. and playing what you feel. Mm-hmm. Because jazz is still about a feel. Yeah. Smooth jazz is definitely still about a feel. Like mm-hmm. some of the most challenging music I've played to date has been smooth jazz music. Because when you listen to it, you think, oh, I'm just doing this. And you get into this thing and you're listening like, okay, no, I'm not just doing that. Right. I'm doing this, that, that, and this. Mm-hmm. And um, while the first two bars were this way, the third and the fourth bar are this way. Yeah. And there's when, a lot of sneaky shit like that. I've, I'm, I'm suddenly like thinking of because uh, I've played some smooth sure. too. Um, and yeah, like you listen to it, especially the first time, and you're like, oh, it's just a pocket thing with a sax melody and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. but the more you get into it, there's like. You know, it's not it's not crazy improv mm-hmm. like straight ahead jazz. Mm-hmm. It's not crazy independent stuff. It's just little subtle stuff that has been arranged or kind of you know. And it's very is very intentional. And yeah. those artists, a lot of times, and I'm I'm wondering this: the more artists I work with, even now, and I've been working with artists God since I was 17, 16, 17. Um, sometimes it's not just about what it sounds like. It's they're using those things as cues for themselves, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So like, I never forget. You know, I'm playing this gig, and I, I spazzed. I was just off somewhere thinking about, okay, what's the next part? And I put the kick drum on the E instead of the and. Mm-hmm. And the artist turned around like, no, it has to be on the end. <laughs> right. Now it has to be on the end. Yeah. You know? Did you listen to it? And like, oh. I got it. It's written. You know, it has to be on the end. And when you're thinking like, it's a 16th note displaced kick drum. Right. But to that artist, it meant everything. And as a musician, as a support musician, it is my job to be a working musician. You have to be able to acquiesce to the, the whims of the artist, right, or or just the larger picture of the show. Sure, um, I'll I'll never forget uh, my my partner Matt interviewed uh, Tracy Broussard mm, yeah. recently, who's Blake Shelton's drummer, and, mm-hmm. and Tracy was like, you know, he was ha- talking about this kind of thing where like, how much freedom do you have mm-hmm. in a show to like, oh, I'm going to do this kind of film mm-hmm. tonight, and Tracy was like, I need to be the least of Blake's worries on that show. I, you know, if I play this fill, if we've established that this fill happens in this place, I have to play it that way mm-hmm. every night because not only is Blake counting on me, the lighting guy is looking for that cue to fire this certain thing. Absolutely. And if I play a different fill than I did last night, yep. the lighting guy is going to be like, wait, what is he doing? So it's very, I, I, man, I, I agree with that 150%, um, especially doing the musical theater productions now. Yeah. The so, okay. I want to get into this. So okay. everything we've been talking about, I've been, I've been thinking about how many similarities there are in the musical theater world mm-hmm. about, you know, certain shit needing to happen in certain times, the exact same way every time. Every time. There you go. Again, that was part one. I will bring you the second half of that conversation in a couple weeks. As you may have seen, we're digging the Instagram takeovers lately. Our recent guest, Dylan Wissing, did a great series on getting started in the drum recording game from his studios, uh, Triple Colossal Studios there in Hoboken. Uh, Quentin is going to do a takeover this weekend. He'll be playing at an amphitheater near Atlanta on Saturday and at the Hollywood Bowl on Sunday with Avery Sunshine. So I'm sure he'll have lots of cool stuff to show us throughout a packed weekend like that. 
Once again, subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher and iTunes. Leave us a rating and review. Tell a friend about us. Anything and everything helps us grow, and we appreciate it all. Come on back next week for Matt Krause's interview. Big thanks, as always, to Mr. Mike Jackson for his technical assistance, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.